Motors Show, your home for car talk covering the latest news to the greatest views on the biggest names in performance, sports, and just plain cool driving machines. Let's rev up the conversation. Time for Driven Radio Show. Well, hello, it's Mark the Engineer. We're taking a knee this week. However, we're doing a best of for back in November of 2020. We had a number of people involved in the show this time. Brett Hatfield, of course, our consummate host and knower of everybody and everything automotive. Plus, we've got Corey Pratt from the Craving Cars YouTube channel and Vern Estes from Vernon Estes Classics. Our special guest for the interview is a legendary figure in automotive history and a guy that Brett Hatfield has been trying to get hold of for so long and did. We got to talk to the legendary Peter Brock. Our special guest this week is legendary designer, author, racer, and all-around amazing car guy, Peter Brock. Pete has worked with the titans of the automotive world, designed legendary sports cars, owned his own design firm and racing team, authored numerous books, worked as a photojournalist, and continues to be a pillar of everything that makes the car world great. Pete, welcome to Driven Radio. Hey, it's just great to be here. Uh, Thank you so much. I'm honored to be on the show, and... uh great to have some good people that understand the car business to talk to because that's always a challenge to the you know sit down with people who don't really understand this business but uh you've all got a pretty good handle on it so uh we can uh, talk among friends uh, and we're thrilled to have you we really are i've been wanting to have you on the show for a long time uh you caught the car and racing bugs really early uh can you tell us what drove this well, the thing is, I I had a, uh, a next door neighbor. Uh, my folks were divorced, and uh, you know I was about eleven years old and stuff. And a guy moved in next door who had an MGTC, and this is you know clear back in about nineteen forty nine, nineteen fifty, and nobody had ever really seen sports cars. And uh, I just fell in love with that uh, with that car, and then uh, I found out that. Uh, you know, he was servicing it at a shop down in, in town. And uh, so I'd just go over there after school or ride my bike over just to look at the cars and stuff. And then, you know, pretty soon they just said, you know, if you're going to stand around, why don't you sweep the floor? So uh, I started doing that and uh, wiping off tools and, and just hanging out with a bunch of guys. They were all in their mid, you know, early 20s and stuff. And then they were racing the cars as well. So then pretty soon I started going to racing with them, and I just, that's been my life ever since. I understand you got a hell of a ride in your neighbor's car. Absolutely. Well, the guy actually with a great ride was a guy named Nato Borgel. He was the first guy that I'd ever seen done fabrication work. You know, uh, if you've never seen a car put together and, you know, you see a guy that actually build the car, start out, you know, with a bunch of tubing on the floor and the sheets of aluminum and ham- hammering it all together and stuff. And it was really an education. Uh, and uh, he was a Frenchman and uh, sort of standoffish and had a rope on front of his shop in there. And, and I just go there and stand by the shop and, and watch him for, you know, 20, 30 minutes at a time and keep coming back. And, you know, over the months I saw this car built, and it was great. So, you know, one Saturday afternoon, he just he pointed at me and he came over and pointed at the seat, said, get in, you know, and, and uh, <laughs> we went for a ride. And this, I mean, this is a full-on, you know, blown MGTC special with a supercharger on it and straight pipes. And uh, in those days, you could go rip-roaring around Marin County. Nobody ever bothered you, you know, up through Mount Camel Pass. And, 
it was just absolutely the coolest thing I've ever done in my life. So this guy made a hand-built MGTC? Yeah, it was all uh, hand-built TC. Uh, you know, we used to call them specials in those days. And my next-door neighbor had a regular TC, which he raced, and I'd go to the races with him. But the guy, Nato Borjols, who had the little shop down there where I used to go after school and work, was the guy that actually built the special. So I was surrounded by guys that were racing. I mean, there were two or three guys in the shop that were racing their MGs. And the guy, Fritz Warren, that moved in next door to me was a guy that I started going to the races with. And uh, so in those days, nobody had trailers. So on a race weekend, you know, like Thursday, everybody quit work. And, you know, there might be eight or nine cars all in a line heading out for some remote spot in California, an airport, or didn't have any real racetracks at all in, the, in those days. So they raced mostly in airports or hill climbs. And, uh, you know, they just go rat racing up the road and stuff, and it was just a, a lot of fun. Well, these vehicles, I'm looking at pictures of them, and they're just gorgeous. They're little bitty things. Looks like Terry Thomas should be in one with his goggles on and his his uh, big old scarf flying in back of him. What a gorgeous vehicle. And uh, the tires, they're almost like motorcycle tires. And these are the things that you were going on deathly speeds with. I, I just, <laughs> I'm amazed and honored. <laughs> well, that was the thing, you know, because there was so little traction on those little skinny tires in those days that the... Uh, cars really drifted and uh, you steered them with a throttle and that was the first time that I really you know understood that you could drive with a throttle as well going through a big big sweeper uh, and the and the back end would get out you know and you're pointed you know all the way across the, the road and going three quarters of a, a angle all the way through this long sweeper uh, you know with a car under control and steering it with a throttle is it's pretty exciting. And uh, I think that's one of the things that I miss sort of about racing today. It's obviously a lot faster with the big fatter tires and stuff, but the whole skill in those days of, of driving with the throttle with the minimum amount of traction made racing so much more interesting. And you could actually see the guy in the car driving the car and, and uh, understand the whole dynamics of what was going on. So after all of this, what did you get for your first car? My first car uh, was an MGTC, because <laughs> that's all it really had in those days. And uh, there, I, about the time I was about 14, I'd been, you know, working in the shop. There, for, for, there was like a one with a blown engine in the back of the shop. And I managed to, you know, put together enough money in during that period of time and bought that car. And, of course, the guys in the shop helped me put it all back together again. And uh, so my first car was a TC, and that gave me such a great, uh, sense of design because it was a very classic design. You know, I was really sort of disappointed when the TD came out because it was all kind of soft and not didn't have the elegant crisp lines that the TC had on it. Uh, but I soon learned that, you know, the suspension was better, the tires were better, the brakes were better, or whatever. So I, I learned the engineering side as well as the aesthetic side at the same time and the fabrication, everything that was going on with it. So I had a, a pretty rounded education, you know, from a very young age of what was going on and how to build stuff and what was good and what wasn't and, and what it took to, you know, build a good car. Within just a couple of years, you wound up at the Art Center School. Uh, were you an artist? And how did you get in? Well, the thing is that I'd, uh, 
you know, I'd gone to Stanford my first year and, uh, I was doing all right there, but I, you know, I just, I didn't find anything that I really liked. And, and the thing that I really found that really pissed me off is that, um, when you go in to take a test, you were competing against all these guys that had already pledged to a, a fraternity or something. And if you go into the fraternity, they have file cabinets there with all the tests. So those guys had a complete <laughs> test with all the answers and everything. And, you know, you could score 95 on your test, and on a bell curve, you'd get a C- minus or something. And, you know, that sort of just really pissed me off, and I didn't want to do that. I'd heard about the school in Southern California that, uh, that taught you how to design cars and stuff, so I just drove down there on Easter vacation and, uh, and you know, walked in the school through the back end with a class walking in there and just sat wrapped in an hour of listening to what was going on and the instructor showing these guys how to, to draw cars and talking about design and history and the whole thing. And I, I knew right there that was something that I really wanted to, you know, get involved in. So I just, you know, I walked up to the front office and said, you know, where do I sign? And they said, well, you know, this is a school for, this is a school for professionals after you've been in the, in the business for a while, you come back here and, and polish your skills. And it was giving me this whole thing about, you know, how good they were. And I said, yeah, 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 I, I understand all that, but where do I sign? I just want to go to school. <laughs> and they said, well, of course, you'll have to have a portfolio and bring that in, and we'll uh, judge whether you can come in or not. And I said, you know, there's a big silence. I said, you know, what's a portfolio? I'd had absolutely <laughs> no no background in art, had nothing. I mean, I'm totally green. And I just said, what, you know, what, what do you mean? What's the portfolio? And they said, well, it's a, uh, you know, you bring in a, all of examples of your best work. And I said, well, okay. So I went out in the, in the parking lot and grabbed my three ring binder, you know, with all the little blue lines in it and sat down there and drew cards like I used to do in study hall. And then just before closing time, went back up and laid them on there and said, here's my portfolio. <laughs> and, awesome. and I mean, the, the registration lady just, you know, she just smiled at me and she says, you really want to go here, don't you? <laughs> and I said, Absolutely. So I just, you know, it's probably the end of the month and they needed a check and stuff. So uh, they said, look, it, we'll give you, you know, we'll give you three months to figure out if you can do it. And uh, so I talked my way in there. And I mean, the requirements to get into that school are just absolutely bananas. I mean, you've got to have, you know, several years of college and business. And and I mean, I walked in there with knowing nothing. And uh, fortunately, we had some really, really top instructors, guys that were pros out of Detroit. And uh, they just... You know, they, they were so good and so helpful. And then I had the advantage of working, of course, with all the other students. And these guys were all pros as well. And they were all helpful. So, uh, you know, I, I twigged on pretty quick on how stuff were going. So I made it about all oh, through my fifth semester there. And uh, and I'd gone down there. And, of course, my, my mom had paid my tuition at Stanford and that stuff. Uh, and she was really against my you know, leaving college and, you know, <laughs> normal education. So she finally just wrote me a letter and said, hey, you know, I'm not going to 
support this anymore. You're on your own. Do whatever you want to do. And uh, so that was it. I was I was out of money at that time. And uh, luckily, I'd gotten to know uh, Chuck Jordan, who later became the vice president of design at General Motors. But at that time, he was a, a studio head and a designer and a headhunter. And he'd come out and he'd look to the guys in the eighth semester who were going to school there to see who he was going to hire to go back to GM. And I told him, you know, I'd gotten to know him over a couple of semesters every time he came out, and told him of my interest in it, and, and he looked at my work and, and knew my enthusiasm and passion for it. So I, I, I called him back at GM and said, hey, Chuck, you know, I said, uh, I'm out of bucks, and I don't have a place to go or whatever. I said, I'm going to be doing flipping burgers down to McDonald's unless you can get me a job. And uh, he said, I'll have an airplane ticket for you tomorrow. And I flew back and hired in and started working for GM. It was the best education I ever had. You were the youngest designer GM had ever hired. And you worked with some automotive titans while you were there and on some historic and iconic projects. Uh, Can you discuss your time at GM? And at the time, did you realize what you were a part of? Oh, Absolutely. I mean, a gym was the, it was like the very best place in the world you could be. I would have worked there for nothing. It was, uh, it was so interesting because, uh, you know, the (laughs) United Auto Workers, the union, they, uh, they unionize everything in Detroit and they're trying to get everybody. And the only group that they could never unionize was the designers at GM. And they'd come in and tell us all these great things about how many days off you're going to get and all these benefits and everything. And we looked at these guys like we're crazy. Said, you know, you don't understand. We work here because we love doing it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it doesn't matter how much they pay us. We're going to work here for nothing. And, uh, uh, and the, the talent in that place was just incredible. You know, guys that were had been in the in the business for years. I mean, uh, Harley Earl, who was the head of design at that time, had been hired in in 1927. Wow. And uh, this was 1957. So you can imagine how long. And he was just getting ready to retire. And Bill Mitchell was, had been his right-hand man for several years. And Bill was going to take over and uh, had a completely different philosophy on design and stuff. And as it so happens in uh, the March of uh, 57, Zora had gone to work for him uh, a couple years earlier, had uh, seen what they were doing with the early Corvettes and went to see him and said, you know, you guys have got a great idea, but it's, 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 it's not a real sports car. And nobody in Detroit really knew what a sports car was. I mean, these guys, their idea of, of an automobile is some sort of living room on wheels that you know you drive around in <laughs> well it was the midwest no none of the roads yeah. had any curves it was a long ways yeah. before the cobra <clears throat> but harley Earlett had uh, because he was a car guy even though here he is in his 70s he'd gone to watkins Glen and had, had heard about this sports car racing that was going on and uh, became enthralled with the whole idea and came back and, and made this fabulous dream car called the lesabre and took it back to, to Watson Glen one year. And, of course, that thing looked like a spaceship compared to anything that they were running. 
but that was his, his passion was automobiles. And, uh, Zora went to, to Earl and said, you know, that's a fabulous car for the American market, but if you really want to do, do something, you've got to do like the Europeans and you've got to build a racing Corvette and that will get the Corvette off the, off the, uh, off the ropes because at that time they'd come out with it, of course, in, in, uh, 53 and, uh, uh, Ford had come out in late 54 with the T-Bird and was just wiping them off the map. They were out selling Corvettes, you know, 10 to one. And, uh, so Zora talked, uh, Earl ended to build in a real sports car and, uh, to make it really quick, we bought a 300 SL, took the body off it, uh, Put one Ed Cole's new Chevrolet V8s in it and did an all new body on the car. And it was designed by another young guy that had gone in there with 19 years old too, a guy named Bob Cumberford. He got to do the car and the car was finished by the time I got in there. But, and that was a super, super secret project and I'd heard about it. They were going to run it down at Sebring in, uh, in March there of, uh, 57. So myself and a couple other guys, we grabbed our Corvettes and we drove all the way, you know, left work uh, at uh, Thursday evening and, and drove around the clock all the way down to Seabrook, Florida and arrived there in time to see the, the prep on the cars because the, the race runs a 12-hour race from Saturday through Sunday and got to see that car show up. So I, I got to know people that were you know, in the racing and the things with GM, I got really pretty excited even more about working there because I got to know guys in Chevrolet engineering, got to know Zora. And uh, so at that time, was, uh, Earl was going to retire and Bill Mitchell was going to take over for him. Uh, GM uh, joined in with uh, Chrysler and Ford and what they call the AMA, American Automobile Manufacturers Association, ban on performance because they thought uh, they were spending too much money and they were spending it primarily on uh, stock car racing and drag racing and stuff. So they all agreed that they were all going to get out of the racing business. No more performance. They weren't going to write about it. It was the end of the whole thing. So part of the program was that since they could no longer build any more performance cars, the Corvette was going to be killed off completely there's no more corvette yeah. yeah so just at the time i'd come in and i wanted to work in the chevy studio and design corvettes and go racing they killed off the program hmm. and uh, so i was really kind of you know really disappointed because i'd just seen the car run and then they turned around and said okay take that thing and uh, put it in the in the crusher and uh, get rid of the car oh my god and no, no more no more corvettes so Zora, being as wise as he was, he took and he gave it to the uh, Indianapolis Motor Speedway Museum and, get, and gifted it to him. And that's where the car resides today. So he saved that car. And then, of course, uh, Bill Mitchell took over uh, from Harley Earl. And uh, being a real guy with gasoline in his veins, he said, there's no way I'm going to get rid of the Corvette. This whole thing will blow over in a while. And in the meantime... Uh, uh, I'm going to be responsible for building a new new Corvette. So the first concept car that he worked on was what we call the C2. It's the second generation of the Corvette, which eventually became the, the 63 split window. 
Mm-hmm. Now, this is still uh, 1957, understand. So he had gone over to the Turin show in Italy and had seen a bunch of really slick-looking cars over there that had a similar-type theme with a crisp belt line all the way around them with a little aerodynamic shape over each tire. And uh, the main one was a car called the Disco Volante, which had been built by Alfa Romeo a year or two before. And it was a coupe. And one of the things that uh, uh, Mitchell knew that the market needed was a coupe for the American market because that was the way the uh, Thunderbird was being marketed and was successful. So he made up his mind that he was going to make a new Corvette coupe and came back, uh, took photographs of all these cars. Now, he could not take that project up to the Chevrolet studio and present it to them because top management that walked around the studios and looked at what was going on would have seen that there was a new sports car being designed there, (laughs) and he would have lost his job for going against top management. But uh, So he went downstairs to the advanced concept studio where I was working, which was basically a studio for the new intern guys, that uh, they they put them in that studio to see how how your work goes. And... uh, Knew he could he could do the car down there in secret because top management would never go down to advanced concepts. So he walked in one day cold on on the studio. He, I mean, here's the vice president of design walking in. We'd never talked to anybody that high in the thing, and he just said, "Guys, sit down. I want to talk to you." And uh, here's what I want to do. And basically, he laid out the whole Corvette program. And of course. We're all looking at each other incredulous. Here's the vice president of design offering to have us design the new Corvette. And we're going, this has got to be a joke. He's probably doing that at every other studio and everything's secret. You don't know what's going on in all these other rooms. So we figured that he'd probably done this in several other studios. But it turned out that it really was secret. And uh, to make a long story short, uh, you know, he asked us to put up our best work and chose my work that was going in. I got to lead the project on it. And this is still 1957. So it took several years from the time that we started working on that thing until it finally went into production. But uh, from 57 through 59, we refined the car. And by that time, management had discovered that the uh, project was going on downstairs. They came down and looked at it. And uh, I guess, you know, they took him upstairs and talked to him very severely and said, you know, Mr. Mitchell, if you want to continue with this project, you can do it on your own with your own money, uh, but you cannot put the Corvette name on it, and you cannot put the Chevrolet name on it. So uh, he agreed to that and uh, came back down and said, guys, we can't do the coupe. I don't have enough money to do the whole thing, but we'll build it as a roadster. And uh, so that's what we did. We ended up building the car. It was called the XP87. It was a Corvette concept car. And uh, took it to the first race in Marlboro uh, in 1957. And, of course, when it showed up, it just absolutely wowed the, the press. It was just a sensation. It was on every magazine cover in the world. And press and the near the Corvette had returned. And it got such an incredible response, favorable Two of his other famous designers that uh, had worked with him 
with Larry Shinoda mm-hmm. and Tony Lakeem. And uh, so they they took the, the concept, the XP87, uh, and they did all the lines for the production car. So uh, I did the concept car. They turned it into the production car. And from the time I started on it, when Bill Mitchell took all my design work on it, uh, it was almost six years until the car was actually uh, delivered out to the public. You had some thoughts on that XB87 Stingray Racer. Uh, did anybody bother to listen to what you had to say? <laughs> well, that car is, uh, they keep that around. Uh, the General Motors uh, styling is sort of an inspiration for all the new guys, and they sometimes have it in the hallway downstairs and sometimes put it in the studio for the guys upstairs, but it, it goes on the road a lot. It's become an icon of design for GM and uh, probably one of the best cars that, that Mitchell ever did. Of course, he did several great cars, you know, the Buick Rivieras, and but uh, that that Corvette really kicked it off for him and always was his favorite. So after they we finished running it a bit, then he took it home as his personal car and he drove it on the street every <laughs> Cool. All the time, you know, during the nice weather and stuff, you drove it to work and uh, loved that car. And it, uh, it was known as Mitchell's Racer, not the XP87. It was Mitchell's Racer. Nice. And uh, <laughs> that's that was the whole story on the car. But you told them, you told Bill Mitchell there should be a couple of changes made to the car. When you told him that, what did he say? Well. Uh, you know, you don't tell Mitchell what to do. <laughs> I mean, some brass. You know, you're an intern design, and this guy's the vice president of design, and he likes everything you're doing. And I've got to say, Mitchell designed the car. I just did the lines for him the way he liked it. I'd put something up on the wall. He'd say, kid, that's great. Do that. Uh, don't do that. Change this. You know, and, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, if you look at the car originally, it had a single rear backlight on it, a rear window on it. And he came in one day and he uh, uh, told the modelers, the clay modeler guys are all in the union. So as a designer, I was not I was not able to even touch the model. Anything that the model had to be done, this is a full-size clay, had to be done by the modeler. So anyway, he said, guys, I want you to take a knife and run a, a knife right down the center line of the back end there. And uh, I'm going to put a real nice thin line there and split that rear window out, you know. So, you know, we're all standing there, and then uh, he directed that. And he said, okay, now finish that all up like we make it in production, you know, with the chrome trim and everything on it, whatever. So that take a, you know, a few days on it. And, you know, Zorro would come over all the time and keep checking on what was going on. And, and of course, he walked in and he saw that and he says, I mean, you know, this big, thick Russian accent, he says, what is this? This is absolutely absurd. Who, who is responsible for all this? You know, looking at all us designers, you know, you're going to try to have us fired. And and we explained to him that uh, <laughs> Mr. Mitchell has requested that. He <laughs> <laughs> cannot do this. You know, this is absolutely stupid. You can't look out the back window, and uh, we will fix this immediately. So by that time, you know, Mitchell had found out that he was down there, and they ended up with this giant screaming match, literally. Here's the, you know, the top guy and the head of the Corvette program over at Chevrolet Engineering and, and the vice president of the styling. And finally it came down, and Mitchell said, well, 
He says, I own this car personally, and I'm telling you to get out of the studio and don't come back, and I'm going to finish it the way I want. <laughs> and, and he literally kicked him out of styling, and of course, he went back to Ed Cole, who was the, the vice president. Uh, he was the head of Chevrolet, vice president, and uh, explained what was going on and said, you know, we cannot do this. And of course, he was highly respected by Cole. And so they had a, a meeting of the minds there and, uh, in the office and brought, him, brought it in. And Cole, you know, being the master politician of what he was, he said, you know, Bill, I know how important this is to you. So if you want it, we'll do it for one year. And then after that, it gets changed over to a solid rear window is what happened. So that's why it only ended up in one year. And that became the iconic design for the car. And, of course, if you've got a 63 today, you know, they're worth hundreds of thousands of dollars more than a, than a regular 64 through 67 Stingray Coupe. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Uh, after a couple of years, uh, you left GM to go racing in Southern California, and you wound up working for Max's Hollywood Motors during the day and working on your race car at night. Can you tell us a little bit about working at Max's and what that was like? <clears throat> Again, you know, uh, I just had such fabulous luck in working with the great people in, in the automotive world. Uh, you know, I bought, when I was in Detroit, the, the, the one of the reasons I'd, I'd gone to GM, you know, at that time you had to be 21 years old to get your driver's license for racing. So I'd gone back there, hired in at 19. So by the time I was just about getting to be 21, I, I wanted to have a race car. So I bought a a basket case car that had, actually it was an ex-Lamont team car from Cooper. It belonged to a dentist in Detroit and he'd run it into the ground and, and I bought it for super cheap and took it home and worked on it. And, and uh, about that time uh, I figured I wanted to go back to California and start racing. So uh, that's when I left GM and I took the car and I went back and, uh, I, I met uh, Max Belchowski at my very first race at Palm Springs, and he was real helpful and, and offered to say, uh, why don't you come over and work for me and chase parts during the day, and I'll help you work with your car at night. And so that's what we did. I, I got to use Max's shop at, at night. I kept the car parked there and had all this genius stuff. I mean, he's the number one special builder in Southern California. And... Uh, he had this great sense of humor because the car was probably the ugliest looking car you'd ever seen in your life. <laughs> and, I, and it was brilliantly designed underneath, you know, but, but he put all this, you know, I mean, he built it literally out of junkyard parts. Uh, and he and his wife designed that car, but with a big V8 in it, and lightweight, it was fast. It was well-designed and uh, it became a real uh, hero of the blue collar crowd at the races because he'd be there racing against all the high buck guys with their Maseratis and Ferraris and, you know, half a dozen mechanics and 40 foot trailers. And Max never owned a trailer. He always drove the car out to the races, raced it and drove it home. And that's the way he, he ensured that the car was always ready to run. It was reliable. And, uh, he worked every weekend on it, uh, take it out to drag races and try something new, try a new set of carburetors, a new cam or whatever on it. 
and just kept refining it. And he did all of this on the street. And uh, so I got to, you know, uh, hang out and learn how that old car was built. And uh, and that's actually where I met Shelby, because in 1959, uh, Carol had won at Le Mans, driving for Aston Martin. And he came back to California in 1959 and wanted to finish up uh, the season 59-60. Uh, he had a bad heart and knew he was going to have to quit. So he... Uh, looked at what had what was going on at that time and the fastest guy with an American car was Lance Revelo and the Scarabs. And uh, so that whole combination of a big American V eight and a lightweight chest, he was real appealing. And of course, uh without any money at all, uh, Carol was able to, you know, kind of swing a deal with Max to to drive the car in several races and did quite well with it and uh, realized that that was really the direction that he wanted to do, was to find this lightweight American V8 engine, put it in a super lightweight chassis, and, and uh, that's what eventually morphed into the Cobra. He found out that the VAC factory in England uh, was going to be without an engine. They were building uh, uh, Bristol engines uh, based on the BMW, and the BMW took the design back, and they didn't have an engine, so... They had a chassis with no engine, and Ford was just going to introduce the new lightweight V8s. Uh, at that time, it was only a 221-cubic-inch engine. They were going to put it in the pickup truck up in Canada. And uh, so he went back to Ford and, and uh, talked Lee Iacocca into the deal. And Iacocca gave him about twenty-five grand, a couple of engines, and, and uh, said, you know, it's the cheapest deal they ever made because they could build something that was going to be fast and maybe compete against the Corvette. And then Carroll took that over to England and told, of course, he had Ford Motor Company and millions of dollars behind him and talked them <laughs> into giving him a chassis. <laughs> I mean, the guy was just magic, at, you know, being able to create stuff. And uh, that whole project put together became the whole Cobra program. And me being his first employee, you know, the first thing I did was run his driving school for him until that, thing opened up and then it, it became larger and larger. And then with all my uh, art school background and stuff, I just basically cre created the image for Carol, you know, with all the new, you know, whether it was business cards or t-shirts or stationery or paint schemes on the car or advertising or, you know, anything, I was doing that until uh, the opportunity came up that he decided he wanted to go to Europe. And, and he knew that the uh, the Cobra Roadster wasn't going to be fast enough in Europe. And I explained to him, you know, that uh, physics is, is is what really <laughs> determines how fast the car is going to be. And that if we put a new body on it, which was allowed under the rules at that time, if you kept the chassis exactly the same, put a new body on it, it was still a legal production car. And uh, so I did design the Daytona, and it was all based on the cars that uh, had been designed there back in 1937 by the Germans. But it was such a strange-looking thing with a chopped-off tail and stuff. Nobody ever had any, uh, any uh, uh, confidence in that idea. So it was a pretty hard sell. And I you know, explained the whole thing to Carol. At first, he got pretty excited about it. And he says, well, you know, what you have to do is, you know, I want you to make a presentation to the guys in the shop, especially our chief engineer, Phil Remington and uh, see what they think about it. And if they all agree that it's a great idea, we can do it. And I said, great. So I 
you know, made up a presentation with, you know, four view drawings and stuff and made a presentation to the shop. And it was like crickets. <laughs> I mean, they, they just got up and walked off. You know, they just thought it was absolutely crazy. And, uh, so Carol said, that, well, I guess that's not going to work. And the only guy that saved the program was that Ken Miles walked over to Carol and said, you know, the kid knows what he's doing. And he says, it's not going to cost us anything at all to let him draw the thing up full size. And we'll make up a, a, a plastic uh, a full size scale in, in plywood, which becomes the book to make the aluminum body. So uh, Ken Miles and myself and the young kid that had come in from New Zealand named John Olson to work on the thing. And the three of us uh, built that book. And uh, by that time, you know, once the guys began to see it in the shop in full size, you know, a couple of guys came over and said, you know, we'll help you in the evening on our own time. You know, they don't have to pay us. And they became part of the team as well. So about five of us ended up building this car in about 90 days. Oh, and, good uh, Lord. Of yeah. course, we took it out to Riverside on February 1st, I remember the date, 1964. Ken came out, and I mean, he didn't even run more than 10 or 12 laps, and he'd broken the lap record by three and a half seconds. I mean, we hadn't even changed the chassis or changed the tire pressures. And he just said, this damn thing is so fast. So he immediately went to the phone and called Carol and said, I'm, I'm going to head back to the shop. You guys bring it back. We need to make a few changes on it. Uh, he says, we don't have enough traction at the back end on it, so we've got to get some bigger tires. And now Carol is the distributor for Goodyear Tires, so when they got back, uh, he called uh, Ted Lobinger at uh, Goodyear and uh, said, this is what we need in this size tire and stuff, and can you have those made for us? We want to run the car at Daytona. And Lobinger says, you know, you know how long it takes to design all the tooling and make new tires and stuff? There's no way that we can do that for you. But he says, we just happened to have finished a new front tire for these stock cars, and it's about the same diameter, but it's quite a bit wider. So, uh, and uh, Carol said, send them out. So that night they put them on a plane, flew them out, and we fitted them on the back of the car. And, of course, that they, they were wider. They stuck out about an inch and a half on either side. So we had to, you know, we didn't have time to change the body or anything. We just made up a new aluminum panel and riveted it on there. <laughs> and, uh, and that's the way we took it to Daytona. So, I mean, it was all done for absolutely no money at all. We never would have gotten it built if Goodyear hadn't put up the money to, to do it. Uh, they paid to have the body panels made down at Calametal Shape. And uh, the regular guys on the shop that were helped build the car became the became the crew on it, and uh, we took it to uh, Daytona. And then the really strange thing was is that Carol, you know, we built this thing around Ken because Ken was the guy who was behind the whole project, and we built it around him completely. It was just like a custom-made suit. And uh, Carol, for some reason, just said, you know, I don't want you to drive the car, Ken. And uh, he said, I'm going to put Bob Holbert and Dave McDonald in the car. And they'd never driven the car. The only guy that ever driven it was Ken. So anyway, we got down to, to uh, and I can't tell you that created such a major problem. I mean, Ken almost quit. Mm. But anyway, we got down to Daytona. And uh, so uh, they put uh, Bob Holbert in the car to begin with. 
he was our top uh, team driver from the East Coast. And uh, Bob went out, and he ran a couple laps and came back, and he said, you know, this is this car is so fast. He says, I'm just walking away from the Ferraris. He said, you know, why don't we cut the RPM limit down on, you know, the five or 700 RPM, and, uh, you know, that'll make the engine more reliable and uh, make sure that we end up finishing. So they did. They cut the RPM down, I think. 500 RPM. He went out again. He was still faster than the Ferraris. <laughs> I mean, these are the, the, the new GTO Ferraris with Pedro Rodriguez and the full factory team there, and he's smoking them. So uh, <laughs> they, they brought it back in, and we cut it down, you know, 700, 1,000 RPM. And at that point, now the car is about the same speed as the Ferraris. So at that point, we did a fuel check on it, and we were the body was so efficient, it was 25% more efficient in a fuel use compared to the roadsters that we'd been racing, you know, for a couple of years. So that was our, our plan. I said, all we got to do is go out there and stay with the Ferraris, and when they pit, you know, we'll be able to make another two laps, and that's the way we'll win the race. We can win, you know, every time they pit, we'll make two laps on them, and that was the plan. So by the middle of the evening, we were... I think we were seven or ten laps in front of the Ferraris and just cruising. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, unfortunately, we ended up with a, a, a fire in the pits, which is a whole story in itself, which I won't tell you right now, but it's a major screw-up. Oh. And uh, so it, it, with, with that fire, uh, Carol was absolutely furious with the, you know, what had happened. And he told the guys that, you know, just pack it up. We're going home. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to stay here. And they're going, Carol, it doesn't matter. We can we can fix all the burn. We can change the rear end on it. The reason that the thing had caught fire is that uh, the differential had gotten hot and it was leaking some grease out. And Bob, of course, had smelled that and come in and said, you know, there's all kinds of smoke in the cockpit. And the guys knew what it was because we've had a problem with the differentials before blowing the seals out. And uh, so uh, they actually, uh, John Olson had crawled underneath the car to, you know, drain the oil up so we could pull the differential on it. That thing, the thing caught fire. And so if, if uh, we hadn't had the guy with a fire extinguisher there, they just filled it up with 35 gallons of fuel. It would have blown sky high, but he managed to get the fire out. It, it burned John pretty well. And uh, but anyway, we, we didn't finish the race, and at that point, uh, Charlie Agapu, our other crew chief, and the guy said, "Carol, it doesn't matter. We're we're set. We're seven. I think seven to ten laps to lead." He said, "By the time they catch up to us, you know, we'll have that new diff in it. We'll have the wiring fixed on it. We can go on and finish the race." And Carol wouldn't 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 have it. You know, he was just so angry about the whole thing. So we oh. didn't finish that race, and consequently, we did not get any points. If we had fixed the car, even if we'd gone out, we could have won the race anyway. But even if we finished third place, we would have gotten enough points that by the end of the season, we still would have had the points to win the championship. So by canceling that race, making that decision at that time, we lost the world championship on the first race. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Jesus. Holy cow. Now that Venice yeah. crew that you were working with during the Cobra years there was a yeah, truly amazing unique, group of guys. 
truly unique group of individuals. Could you tell us a little bit about working with them and what the guys were like? Well, the thing was they were the, the, the most talented group of guys. They're all California, uh, either guys that are hot rod builders out of the lakes, you know, or drag racing. Uh, their whole goal, of course, was to go to Indianapolis. That's the whole thing that American racing was focused on and had been for 60 years. And uh, they were almost embarrassed to tell any of their peers in the in the racing community that they were working on sporty cars because <laughs> nobody had any respect for these sporty cars. But by the time, uh, by 63, rolled around and, and we won the United States Road Racing Championship against Corvette, the guys really began to take a lot of pride in what they had there. But um, these guys were absolutely the, the finest fabricators and the greatest bunch of guys to work with uh, that loved their work and took such pride in it. And it was, you know, just an honor to be around them and watch them work. And, of course, the guy that was leading them all was Phil Remington, who is still today, you know, considered probably – the greatest engineer fabricator that we ever had in Southern California. You know, he built all the scarabs and just every other fast car that ever was built over at Dan Gurney's, you know, that was all built by Phil, Phil Remington, who, who went over to Dan's after we uh, finished up at Shelby's. So it was just a chance to work with the best, fastest guys in the world. And, uh, you know, if, if they built it, it was going to work. And uh, so that was that's how it came about. They all thought the car was crazy when when we first built it, but we went out and it was fast right out of the box. And uh, even with the fire, you know, the, it just fired everybody up. So we ended up doing five more. The problem was that we had such a small group of people in the shop at that time um, that uh, there was nobody to build the rest of these cars. So uh, Carol called up Alessandro Di Tommaso and Modena. And uh, said, you have a shop over there that can build the bodies for them. We'll finish the chassis up here, and then we'll fly them over and do the bodies. So that's what ended. We ended up doing five more bodies, and all of those were built in, in Modena. So I got a chance to go over to Italy and, and work in Italy and watch how the Italians build cars. I'm sure much to the chagrin of Enzo Ferrari, who was also based in the same town. <laughs> Who's this young guy? Come on, with toys, show me how to how to race. Hey, pasta fazula. Well, it, it was really created kind of a major, major problem in the shop because, of course, the, the Italians were all very much in favor of Ferrari. He was probably the second most important person in Italy behind the Pope. And... Uh, <laughs> Uh, if any shop, you know, was working for Maserati or Lamborghini that was coming along, they sort of became uh, an enemy of, of the Ferrari fans. So the fact that these Americans were over there having a car built, uh, they all sort of laughed at it because, of, you know, this motor was a production motor out of a sedan. They didn't think much of, much of it at all until, of course, it started racing. But... Uh, it put the shop that we were working on, Colossal Rio Grande Sport, kind of put them on the outside of society there because they had gone against, uh, you know, the, the establishment uh, of Ferrari. But uh, it created lots of work. And, and again, working with Italians was just fabulous. These guys were, again, passionate and great workers. And they did it with nothing. I mean, I can't believe you, 
I can't tell you how crude the tools were. You know, I was so used to working with these guys in California that had all the latest stuff to work with. And I got over to Italy, and these guys are working with stuff that had been made in the Middle Ages, you know. <laughs> and yet all of the stuff came out. I mean, it was just every bit of it was handcrafted. It was beautifully built. You know, we built stuff in California. It was all built on power hammers and, and formed out. These guys did it all by hand. Whoa. And it was uh, amazing. It was like watching. You know, they, they, every piece was only about, you know, two or three feet square. And they just made all these different pieces, and then they put it together like a quilt, and then smoothed it all out. And uh, I mean, they—they're artisans, you know. That they weren't just—they weren't fabricators. These guys are truly artisans, and that's why Italian cars are so beautiful because they just—they work and build them all with their hands. Unbelievable. So. When you left Shelby, you went to start your own design firm and racing team. Uh, what did that involve? What did you do? Uh, just give us a sketch of what you were doing. <clears throat> well, the, the thing was, is that um, if you go back to that particular era of uh, when I started working, uh, I actually started working for the Japanese when I was working for Carroll, um, there was uh, a program going on at, at that time. I don't know if you remember a guy that was building a, a car called the Shadow, Can-Am car, the Shadow. Okay, sure. And uh, so uh, he had been working in, in Japan and uh, wanted to build a, a, uh, a Daytona-type speedway with Toyota in Japan. So he got to know Bill France pretty well and he would go from Japan clear down to Daytona to meet on this and back and forth. And every time, of course, he'd stop in Los Angeles and, and stick his head in the door and talk to Carol and see what was going on with us. He was a guy that kind of knew everything about racing from all over the world, all kinds of stuff. And, uh, so, uh, there was another guy that he had a friend that was in the, in Japan, another American guy that was there, uh, a guy named Bob Dunham. And, you know, he was just kind of living uh, as an American in, in Japan by teaching English and also working in Japanese movies when they needed a, a gaijin guy, uh, a, a white guy in, in the movie. He, he was uh, a guy, an actor, and sort of, so he got into the racing stuff, and, and the whole Japanese automotive structures, each manufacturer runs in a different class because you can't. If, if you lose a race to another factory, it's a major loss of face. I mean, it's a it's a huge, you know, cultural thing that you cannot lose in Japan. You can race against privateers and beat them. So each manufacturer raced in a different class and they'd sell cars to all the privateers and they would have races over there. And of course the factories would always win. So everybody was happy, but one factory would never race against another factory. That was uh, not done. So, uh, <laughs> uh, so I, I began working for a, a, a company that was at the bottom of the pecking order. And this was, Hino. Because they were primarily a builder of trucks and buses, 
<laughs> but they wanted, there was a, a group of guys in the factory enthusiasts that wanted to build a really good quality car. Their dream was to build something like a Porsche someday because they building trucks and buses that was very high quality. That's the thing they really understood. So the only thing that they had at that time was a license to build on a Renault R4, which is a, you know, funny little French sedan, you know, with a, with an iron motor in the back with swing axles and, you know, worse handling than a Volkswagen was at the time. But that's all that, that they were building with, you know. And these are guys are all engineers, but they're, they don't know any practical hot rotting tricks or anything. Understand that, you know, that if you want to raise compression or change cams or whatever on that kind of stuff, they have to go through a whole business procedure to design it. And, you know, it's just not done like it's done in Southern California. So, uh, Don told uh, Bob, he says, you know, if you want to make that thing run, he says, why don't you take it over to California and see Pete at Shelby's, and he can fix that thing up for you, and you can run it in California and get the car running and then bring it back here to Japan, and you'll be, you know, pretty fast. So that's what it worked out. Uh, Bob Dunham uh, brought the car over to California, and we made a deal that I'd uh, prepare the car for him, and he'd race it uh, for a year, and then... Uh, uh, he would go back to Japan and he'd leave the car there and he'd get another car and bring it back. And uh, so I ended up with the car. And at that time in the United States, there was no sedan racing. The Sports Car Club of America did not permit any sedans to run. However, there was a guy that with uh, Sports Car Illustrated, a guy named uh, W.R.C. Shednell, and he was the, uh, the engineering editor. And... Uh, he realized that there was a bunch of guys in Southern California that had all these little Mini Coopers and Lotus Cortinas and Sobs and all kinds of stuff. They all wanted to go racing. So he went down to the local region uh, of the Sports Car Club of America, and of course they told him, no, we don't race sedans or whatever. But there was another club in Southern California called the California Sports Car Club that was independent, and they were running their own races, and they were paying drivers, which was, you know, not done in those days. But anyway, he went to the, the guys on the board, Ken Miles was on the board, and said, look, I've got, you know, 15 guys that will, would love to run sedans. I'll bring these guys out, and we'll have a class for them. Can you do that? And they said, sure. So that's the way that sedan racing started in the, in the United States, is with the Cal Club, because FCCA wouldn't permit it. And it just so happened that uh, it, uh, the, the biggest race in the world at that time, money-wise, was the Los Angeles Times Mirror Grand Prix. And uh, so we, they would get huge crowds out there. And uh, so they wanted to have an opening event. So they couldn't go to the California Sports Car Club. So they came to the Cal Club and said, why don't you guys bring a bunch of sedans out there and we'll put on a hundred mile race for little sedans as an opening event, uh, before the Grand Prix. So they did that. And, uh, so we had this big field of, uh, of small foreign sedans out there. And of course I had these funny little Hino cars and, uh, I built a couple of hot rod motors and we ended up bringing the race one, two. And at that point, uh, it was a major, major coup because the Japanese cars had never raced in the United States and much less won anything. And here we'd run this race in front of, you know, 80,000, 100,000 people. 
and it was just a huge, huge event. So <laughs> it was publicized in Japan, you know, that these Hino cars had won the uh, Riverside Grand Prix, and you know, it was just an amazing uh, publicity coup for Hino and put them on the map, and uh, sort of gave me an entree into Japan. And uh, so when I went back to the factory, they were, you know, super, super pleased with everything I'd done. So they offered me the distribution of all the lines in the cars in the United States. I'd wow, get to design wow. the cars. I'd get to run the factory team. I mean, I'd, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. I was everything good that could possibly happen. And then about uh, two weeks before we did the final contract, uh, the uh, chairman of the board uh, died of a heart attack. <laughs> and the oh, whole project no. stopped. Oh, my God. And that was the end of it. Oh, no. Yeah, so it went to zero. <laughs> After Hino, you wind up racing Datsun and Nissan cars, first with the 240Z yep. and then with the 510. And Corey is a huge 510 fan. So when you get to that part, go real slow. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's kind of an odd strange thing that happened because uh, by then I'd, uh, been, I'd, I'd left Shelby's and I was building this race team for, you know, and uh, at that time Toyota decided that they were going to come out with a new sports car called the 2000 GT. And the other thing that went on is, is that, that uh, Toyota, the only cars that they could, only vehicles that they could sell in the United States because at that time everything out of Japan was pretty much junk cars. And whether it was Datsuns or whether it was uh, Toyotas or whatever, they were all sort of bad copies of European design that they'd bought the license to copy them in Japan, mm -hmm. and they were not very good. So the only thing that was really selling for Toyota in the United States was pickup trucks, and they could sell them to every Japanese gardener they, they could find. <laughs> so... Uh, uh, they wanted to build more pickup trucks. So they owned 15% of Hino. So they ended up making a hostile takeover. They went around and bought all of the stock and took over Hino and cut off all the entire car racing program to build pickup trucks. And of course, uh, they came over to my shop to see what I was doing and they were impressed with it. So they had offered me the, the contract to run the 2000 GTs. And I said, okay, if we do that. So, uh, I signed the contract to do that, and they promised to send the cars over. So at the same time, uh, Ford had just cut off their racing program with uh, with all of their teams, and of course that included Shelby. So Shelby's sitting with this huge operation there at LAX Airport, and uh, with nothing coming on. So he went to his accountant and said, "Barry, what are we going to do? We got this huge shop and no racing." And Barry says by a Toyota dealership, and and Carol didn't know anything about owning a dealership or anything. He says, is that a good thing? And, and Barry, of course, knew what was going on. He says, the smartest thing you can do is buy a Toyota dealership. So he said, well, fine, go down to 190th Street and uh, buy one, and we'll build a place here in, in El Segundo and, and uh, sell Toyotas and service them out of the south. So Barry went down there and told him that, you know, what was going on, and of course, Shelby at that time was at his at, at peak of his career. He just won Le Mans. Uh, he was all over the press. I mean, he was the number one name in American racing, sports car racing. And here was this opportunity to work with Shelby. 
So uh, Toyota looked at the contract they signed with me and, and uh, looked at Carol, and Carol, of course, said, do you want to go racing? And they said, well, we just signed a contract with, with Pete Brock. And he says, well, you know, he's just a guy that used to change tires for me. <laughs> and, uh, oh, so, uh, oh and, man! Course, you know they didn't know any better. I mean, here's the guy just won Le Mans. He's the number one guy. So are they going to go with this guy that they thought was pretty good? You know, and, and had had worked with the Japanese for three years and had a good reputation. Uh, so they made the decision to go with Shelby. So I'd gone out and hocked myself to the eyeball. I bought a new Infrad Dyno, set up the shop. And got all set, you know, for these cars to, sh- to show up, and they didn't come. And then the money didn't come either, you know. And I'm, God, I'm really getting stressed on what's going on because, and they're saying, well, you know, we're having some problems, you know, they're going to be delayed or whatever. They wouldn't tell me what was going on. And finally, one of the guys over at Shelby called, you know, because I'd worked there and we we're friends. He said, you know, you're not going to get these Toyota 2000 GTs. And I said, of course I am. I've got a contract right here signed. You know, I'm supposed to have the cars on this such and such a date and, and whatever. And he says, you're not getting the cars. They're here, and we're building them to go racing. Mm. And I got finally, again, the penny dropped. I figured out what was going on. So I said, okay, who's Toyota's biggest competitor? <laughs> so it's Dotson. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I got in my car, and I, I drove straight over to Gardena. I didn't know a soul. Walked in the door and, you know, talked to the lady at the front desk. And I says, is there anybody here that's involved with, you know, a racing program or anything like that? She says, I don't think so. We don't, we don't do any racing or anything. And I said, is there anybody that even knows anything about it? And they said, well, you know, we've got, we've helped some dealers out occasionally, but uh, that's about all. I said, well, who's the guy? So she said, well, it's a guy named Lee Wiley. So I said, that's the guy I want to see. Anyway, she made an arrangement for me to go to see Lee Wiley. And, and I sat down and told her the whole program of what I wanted to do. And I said, I'd need a couple of your cars. Not, I'm going to go blow Shelby's, you know, new Toyotas off. And, you know, <laughs> he just thought I was out, out of my mind. He said, you know, we know, our cars aren't any good. We can't do that. And, uh, and I said, you don't understand. I said, anything can be a race car if you know how to build it. And uh, and what I didn't know, of course, at the time is that he did have a budget to do racing, but it was going to his son-in-law who owned the dealership. Oh. So obviously he told me no. So then I got kicked out of his office, and then I went back out and I said, who handles your advertising and promotion, whatever? So introduced me to another guy, and I went up and I said, I want to talk to the president, you know, of, of the company. Oh, well, we can't do that. Uh, at, uh, you know, it's very high end. It's only people up in the industry. And I said, well, here's what I want to do. So he listened to my story. And he said, that's absolutely crazy. We don't want to have anything to do with that. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> so, they, <laughs> so they they told me basically to go, you know, pound sand. So I went back and got on the phone and I called Mr. Miyako, who was the guy that I'd worked with at Hino. He was the guy that was in charge of all the money at Hino. And uh, I explained the whole situation to him. And I said, you know, I'm really in a, in a, in a bind on this thing. And uh, uh, Toyota screwed me over. People at Dodson won't talk to me. Uh, 
have you got anybody else in Japan that might be interested in going racing? And he says, well, you know, we've been friends for three years. You've been a great guy for us. Uh, give me a couple of days. I've got, uh, I've got some friends in the Nissan Motor Corporation, and I will go over there and explain the situation to them. So he calls back in a couple of days and says, okay, it's all set. Uh, you got the money coming, and the cars will be at the dealership and go down and pick them up. <laughs> Holy cow. Says, what do you mean? How did you do that? He says, well, he says, uh, you know, a guy that I know I went to school with uh, is the chairman of the board of Nissan Motor Corporation. <laughs> and, uh, and, I, and I told him what you needed, and he said, you know, that's just a drop in the bucket for him. So uh, they... They made the contract with me, sent me the cars, the whole thing, said you can do whatever you want, it's on your own. And uh, so we did it. So we built the whole cars up in secret, you know, getting ready for the first race of the season. And, of course, we showed up at tech inspection, and Shelby had been building all his cars in secret as well. And sort of the word had got out to the press that uh, Shelby was going to be there with these new cars at tech. And so there's all this intrigue going on, and then we roll in, and of course the the, the, the dealer, the dealer, the son-in-law dealer is there with his program, and, and we show up with these really trick-looking cars, and he's asking the guy at Nissan, he's going, "How come these guys have racing cars that are look better than mine?" You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and he said, "We don't know. Well, how did?" They had no idea that I'd gone over their head and worked this thing out in Japan. So they were, you know, kind of pissed off that I'd gone over their head and whatever and wouldn't talk to me at all. And uh, so then we went racing, and, of course, we won the Pacific Coast Division Championship the first year and blew off the Toyotas and (laughs) and blew Shelby out of the water so he couldn't go to the Nationals. And and at that point, of course, uh, I got a phone call from – from Mr. Uh, Kawayama's personal secretary, and she said, you know, Mr. Kawayama would like to meet you, and would you please come down and, and lead us? So I went down there, and of course these guys that had, you know, shuffled me off, now were very, very gracious. And, you know, <laughs> I was going to been invited directly to, to the president's office. So everything was reversed. And, uh, and I walked in there, and of course, you know, Mr. Kawayama could not have been a nicer guy. Just one of the most fabulous guys I'd ever worked with. And so he, you know, congratulated us, told us what he wanted to do, and wanted me to run the new factory team, and rolled out the pictures of the new 240Z and said, "This is what oh, we're going to have for you." Oh, hello. So that's that's the way the whole thing started. Oh, that's so cool! I'll be doggone. So cool. Oh, Pete. So if you know if you're going to write a movie script, you couldn't write a better one. You know, because <laughs> you're up and you're down, you're up and a down. And uh, and all friends and great people to work with, Pete. There's you've done so much stuff, and yep. ha- had your hands in so many things. And there's so much more yep. to to cover. Uh, you know, building hang gliders and <laughs> a, a, a little. <laughs> A, a little yeah. rocket box of a VW van that I really want to talk to you about. Oh yeah, right. And <laughs> the Aero Vault, and you've been a photographer and an auto journalist for decades, and 
you've written a, a bunch of books, and you've got a, a, a new <laughs> modern Daytona coupe that you built for yourself, and there, there's so much stuff we want to talk to you about. I wonder if I could talk you into coming back and discussing more of the cool stuff you've done. And All right, we'll do that. There's so much. Now, I do have one final question that I ask of everybody, and okay. uh, it's it's the the question that usually gets us the best answer and the most colorful answer. What's the dumbest thing you've ever done in a car? Oh, jeez. Oh. <laughs> I guess I couldn't print that, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did it at 180 miles an hour. <laughs> but there's, some, there's some great adventures in cars that are, you know, not for publication. I'm not trying to think of anything else, you know. <laughs> well, so. Pete, thank you so much for being with us, and we're dying to have you back. Like I said, there's right. so much more to discuss. My God, when did you sleep? You sure seem to stuff everything in that you possibly could. It's been a lot of fun, I'll tell you. Leaving leaving college and uh, deciding not to do the professional thing. Never made a lot of money, but I got to do all the things that people that made a lot of money always wanted to do. I, I looked at that, you know, about the guys going racing and stuff that were working in the shop and racing. I said, these guys are having more fun and it's a it's a greater pleasure in life to do what you want to do your dreams rather than making a lot of money and having later in life to be able to buy that. And I said, you know, that doesn't make any sense. Why not do it at the age you can do it and enjoy it? And that's what I've done. Uh, well, we are all hugely envious. Uh, mm. I, I think I can say that unreservedly. And we're thrilled that you took the time to be with us here tonight. We'd love it if you'd come back and talk about all the other cool stuff you've done. And my God, what a list. Uh, all right. Pete, we'll thank you that. so very much. We've been speaking with legendary, with the legendary Peter Brock about his exceptional history and life with cars. You can find all of the social media lot links for Mr. Brock on readthedriven.com. Pete, it's been an honor. Thank you so very much for taking the time Amen. to be yes. with us. Yes. Absolutely. All right. Take care. I, I hate had it I hated having to cover cut him off. There's so Oh, there's so much, much more. More wow. stuff. He's done so much cool stuff. This guy it's, it, it, that's gonna be a hard one to top. You know, uh Dos Equis missed the boat when they were looking for the most interesting man <laughs> in the world. It should have been Pete Brock. I don't man. always go 187 miles an hour, but when I do, <laughs> it's in a I car do. I designed. <laughs> so oh, very cool. That That's is crazy. uh man, I'm I'm honored to have just had him here. I could listen to him all night long. Oh yeah. That was extraordinary. Thank you so very much for spending time with Driven Radio. We love what we do. We wouldn't be able to do it without the support of our listeners. You can find us online at DrivenRadioShow.com and ReadTheDriven.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at DrivenRadioShow.com or at Driven Radio Show. And listen on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, Audible, and everywhere fine podcasts are heard. I am Brett Hatfield for Corey Pratt. Yes. Catfish Groves. Yep. And Mr. Vernestus. Yo. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you here next time on Driven Radio. Mm-hmm.